Welcome back to the Cutting Exchange by Medtronic. Please enjoy today's episode. Is anybody of you aware of research in the anticoagulation management area, which could be promising for the future? You mean like new drugs? New drugs, yeah. Anything on the horizon that you're aware of? No, I mean, not. We, were, we were part of the um, PROACT. 10A studies. Yep. So we were obviously very hopeful that Eliquis would get approved for mechanical valves, but that obviously that study was stopped early because of an event rate. So that that's really, that was the latest, biggest thing for us, but, but that yep. did not pan out. So I'm still optimistic that eventually we'll find something that doesn't require blood level monitoring for mechanical valves. I think that would really change the algorithm for a lot of people. Yeah. And then are you aware of what would you try to see in bioprosthetic heart valves that, you know, future innovations that does not need warfarin for three or six months, any, anything what you think is on the horizon that could help here? I think the holy grail would be some sort of prosthesis that is not a tissue valve, but not doesn't require anticoagulation like a mechanical valve, some sort of polymer, you know, not, but that is beyond my pay grade. <laughs> you guys make the products, I'll put them in. I don't, I don't <laughs> Tissue engineered heart valves, uh, yeah. something like that. Is that, is that Mark, is that what do you think polymer versus tissue engineered heart valves? I think there are some efforts abound that uh, people are trying to come up with uh, polymers that don't require any coagulation and have a, a longer lifespan. And I'm curious to see how those are going to progress. And obviously in probably not the aortic position, but certainly the pulmonary position, uh, particularly in the congenital world, there's a number of efforts to try to bioengineer valves. I think still with limited success, unfortunately. It has been very challenging to find a polymer eh, that lasts very long. Because, Juan, if, if I would come to you and say, hey, there's a new polymer valve developed, what would be the reason for you to say, well, yes, let's implant it in a patient? Well, I think that it's important to advance the, the science and the polymeric valves and the new materials. Uh, if they have a solid experimental data and convincing experimental data in in animals as well as in the in vitro testing of the, the materials, I think it's reasonable to try them within the context of a, of a clinical trial. I think that if we have, I mean, the holy grail, as uh, Dr. Harrington said, the holy grail of aortic valve replacement would be to have a valve that it lasts forever and doesn't require anticoagulation. But that has been tried and tested and promised, you know, many, many times over the, over the course of the last 50 years. And uh, there hasn't been delivery on that promise up to the moment. But, you know, the technology, as you know, is substantially better than what it has been uh, for the last uh, 50 years. We have all these ways to test and design the valves in a more testing stress areas. We have new materials, we have new polymers and uh, the knowledge of the companies and the and the ability to test the valves in vitro has substantially improved as well as the design. So I'm hopeful and we'll see what happens. Yeah. So Catherine, if we talk about this new polymer valves, what kind of data would you like to see before you start implanting it in a patient? Yeah, I agree. I, I'd want to see um, good long-term animal data before. It's I two years. Two years is that is that enough? I think from a thromboembolism standpoint, that would be enough for me. From a durability standpoint, probably not. You know, there are some eighty-year-olds that are anatomically prohibitive for TAVR. Those would probably be the people that I would, you know, first start trying those in. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. a physician, I would think I would be hard to convince me a polymer valve. You know, because 
what is the advantage over a biprosthetic heart valve? What I would ask myself, I want to see the same durability as a, at least a biprosthetic heart valve, isn't it? Yeah. But that might be hard to prove with animal data. Mark, what, what do you think? Well, I was just wondering if surgical valves should mimic the TAVR progression that we put the valves in patients that may not need them quite as long. And then as we gain more longevity with the valve, then we would start to introduce it into lower age groups. Unfortunately, the age group that would benefit from the most would be the younger patients. So I know some of the efforts are actually to put the polymer valves in everyone right out of the box. Right. Yeah. So what do you think is the ultimate you know, group of patients that will benefit? Do you think TAVR will go further down in age? Or, or do you think, you know, we have reached almost, let's say, the end point for TAVR, what, what the, the population that they can treat? What will happen in the coming years? I think it depends entirely on the durability you know the the amount of valves you need to put in a patient will alter the you know the lifetime management a lot so completely depending on durability what they're going to put out is uh, i think if they stay at say 10 years then uh, we're not going to creep much below 60 65 because we're just i think the lifetime management of putting a valve and a valve and a valve and a valve is just not going to pan out there's too many issues yeah well i think no sorry i agree i mean the durability is number one and then the strategy for the second procedure. I think that we, if we have a, a solution to address increased gradients on valve in valves, whether it's tower in tower or valve in surgical valve, we have an, a, an strategy, a strategy to address a coronary occlusion or and coronary access that will have the potential of expand the use of tower valves to younger patients. But right now, we don't have a good solution for those problems. Maybe the last question for you all is that, so how to educate new generation of surgeons in surgical AVR, Mark. <laughs> How to educate the surgeon? Uh, yeah, because there will be less patients to educate young surgeons in, in doing a surgical AVR. Is there enough patient volume still or is it a challenge? So I think in the high volume programs, we still have adequate volume to train the surgeons. One thing is has been interesting for me is that more of the younger surgeons are learning how to treat bicuspid aortic valves and they're uh, learning to treat tricuspid valves. Another issue though that I think is important is the complexity of the redo surgery of the TAVR valve. And I think that's another educational issue. And I think that also will influence the, what age we start to put in the TAVR valves is what our ability to replace the TAVR valves in, in the future as, as more and more come to need that. So Catherine, you're doing both TAVR and, and surgical AVR, et cetera, and, and many other types of surgery as well. Is that is that still a model that will persist in the coming years? Because the patients that come back with the TAVR are, are very challenging. You know, sometimes root replacement or th- those surgeons have enough time to spend time in the cath lab and in the OR. I agree with what Mark said that I think a lot of these are going to need to be specialized. You know, they already have these valve centers of excellence that especially TAVR explant and uh, patients who can't get a TAVR because of anatomical complexity and need a root enlargement or a root, those should be done at centers of excellence. I I think people who are doing TAVR should also still be doing open surgery. I think it's important to keep people who know that anatomy um, involved. I'm not interested in kind of siloing it out uh, between the two. I, I think structural heart surgeons should should stay involved in the structural heart interventions as well. Yeah. And Juan, what is your policy? What is your thinking about what will happen in the future? 
Well, in terms of the education, I think that both surgeons, I mean, surgeons should be involved in both in the towers and as well as in the uh, surgical um, root replacements, as well as aortic valve replacements. In terms of how to involve the trainees in uh, how to teach the trainees to deal with these uh, increasingly complex aortic surgeries, you know, the, the number of isolated AVRs are decreasing, but not the number of complex or combined AVRs. In our our training program, we teach our trainees to do aortic valve replacements and root replacements in combination with coronary artery bypass surgery or in combination with a mitral valve or a root replacement. And it's a more challenging operation overall. And obviously, we piecemeal the operation in order to allow the trainee to to take part on the on a certain part of the surgery and learn, you know, how to do it. But certainly, the type of aortic valve replacements that are going to come in the future are going to be more complex because they're going to be the redo AVRs, which is we already have been doing for for years. But it's going to be the redo AVRs with a previous tower or the redo AVR with two towers in place. And we need to learn, you know, how to do them, and not only from the technical standpoint, but physiologically support those patients to get them through the surgery successfully. Right. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So thank you all very much for, for joining this conversation and this episode on anticoagulation management. More than that, also about, you know, the strategy for surgical AVR and TAVR, especially, you know, in patients getting younger, more complex, etc. So thank you, Catherine Harrington, Mark Cunningham, and Juan Castanello for joining this episode on the podcast on, on surgical AVR. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe at metronic.com slash cardiac exchange to find additional podcast content.